informative, educational, insightful. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. Ladies and gentlemen, we're back broadcasting live from the Advanced Advertising Theater here at the NAB Show 2016. I'm Lori Schwartz, your tech cat. Welcome. We're going to be diving into a fabulous topic, really trying to understand what's happening in the future of television, especially talking to researchers who are looking at what people are doing, what are their habits, what's the data really telling us, and to navigate us through this fabulous conversation is none other than Mike Bloxham, ladies and gentlemen, from MAGA TV. Let's see if a hand for Mike. Mike has been in this space for over 25 years looking at behavior, looking at data, also looking at cross-platform behavior, and did a lot of great work at Ball State when I first met Mike, really doing innovative research there, and he has some wonderful panelists, so ladies and gentlemen, let's have a big advanced theater hand, advanced advertising theater hand for Mike Bloxham. Thank you very much. Um, okay, uh, let's have an even bigger hand for my guests who a, know for m far more than I do, and B, are far more important than I am. Mr. David Poltrak, uh, President of CBS Vision, Chief Research Officer of CBS, and Liz Hazarek, EVP, Consumer Insights and Research at Warner Brothers. Please. <coughs> thank, you, thank you. Now, when Laurie asked me to, to moderate a session here, I thought, okay, I've, I've spent a lot of time talking uh, in gatherings such as this where the focus is on how the media landscape, and particularly the TV landscape, or something that we now refer to increasingly as the video landscape, and uh, we'll come back to that, is, is evolving, often very rapidly, at a pace where we don't tend to think of evolution, we think of revolution. One thing that I think is often missing from these types of discussions is, is the voice of the people that are the major players as it currently stands. Hence, a major broadcaster, Hence, a major studio, producer and a broadcaster of content. These are the entities that have survived prior rounds of disruption. Uh, if you remember, in the uh, era of the dot-com bubble, as we now thought of, but dot-com was going to eat the lunch of TV, among many, many other businesses. Didn't happen. Um, to the point, which business would you rather be employed by right now, Yahoo or CBS or NBC or ABC? It's or interesting to me that when you look at what's going on with Yahoo at the moment, you have uh, one, of the, one of the players who's in the mix is the Mail Online, better known to me from England as the Daily Mail, a newspaper group as was, which reinvented itself uh, to be, I believe, the biggest digital publisher of content on a daily basis around the world now looking at picking up some bits of Yahoo to make itself even more strong. So the point is, in my view, the, we rush to judgment on the apparent fate of the large incumbents when there are changes afoot. That's not to say those changes are not going to have impact. Of course they will. We know that. But very often, the reason that these large incumbents have survived is because they are adaptive, they are resilient, they have scale, and above all, they innovate, and they innovate on a grounded basis. It's not innovation for the sake of innovation. It's innovation that can be proven in increments to work or abandoned and moved on. So it's understanding what is the difference between a bright, shiny object and something which actually represents a bright, shiny future. So what I want to get into with my guests today is, is to talk about some of those issues and some of the, the, 
ways in which a major broadcaster and a major content producer actually look to navigate these waters, which are admittedly increasingly uncertain, um, and, and how you help to inform the decisions that senior team make at each of your organizations with regard to, to investing in the future. So um, I'm going to start off with, with what I guess is probably a fairly, fairly softball question because it's nice and general and you can take it wherever you like. But thinking of, of tech-based innovation in the marketplace and tech-based change right now, what would each of you say is, is probably the, one of the biggest tech-based threats to the way in which your business is done right now? The biggest threat to our, way our, to our business right now actually is misinformation. I mean, it's essentially the fact that uh, the, there's a perception out there uh, from a lot of uh, hyper uh, reports from various uh, supposed pundits in the business that things are, ha things are ha changing dramatically, that millennials are never going to watch television that the entire television business is going to deteriorate, we're not going to have the big screen televisions in our home anymore, that advertising is going to disappear, that no one's going to respond to advertising anymore. Uh, meanwhile, while that's going on, millions of people are watching the, the, the programs that we put out every week and they're watching them on different devices. They're watching them in different ways. They're watching them on different devices. What essentially, we're in the content business. And if you say that 10 years ago, the only way you could watch our, the only way you could watch our content was live uh, on a television set at a prescribed time. Now, and now you can watch it 100% of the time. So, the, the, the broadcast television network in 1990, a broadcast television network, was all, you could only, it only broadcast a third of the day, and during the, the period of time, only an average of 80% of the people were home, which meant that that's only about a quarter of the day could you actually watch a network show. Now you can watch a network, our, sh our shows, that are our primetime shows can be watched every day, 24 hours a day, on any device wherever you are. So we've gone from 25% coverage of the market to 100% of the coverage. That's like a retailer who had one store on one corner, all of a sudden having a, a, a store on every single corner. You're going to sell more stuff. Yeah. and you're going to get more viewers. And that's the, the CBS audience, the average CBS prog primetime program today has 13, is watched by 13.6 million people. Uh, each episode is watched by 13.6 million people. That's more than we're watching the average CBS program in 2000. Hmm. So the, the, the technology is, if you look at, the, you know, the negative side of the technology and the positive side of the technology, the positives far outweighs the negative. But if you look at the media coverage of the situation, the negative gets all the coverage. I, I, I want to add to what David's saying. I think I'm going to pivot, though, like any good politician, and turn it from a challenge into an opportunity. 
because that's what we see with partners such as CBS as well as all of the tech companies out there, right? We, just like David has more um, viewers to bring in, more retail stores was his analogy, we actually have more players to license to. Right? So we don't only have the traditional networks and the cable networks. We now have a plethora of SVOD uh, providers to license both original and off-network or off-cable content. So it's really opening an opportunity from our perspective. One of the biggest challenges, David said, was misinformation. I'll, I would um, add to that and say it's lack of information. Because when we do license content to some of the tech companies, we don't always have transparency into the audience, into the behavior. So we're now pulling together disparate data sets to understand that behavior and model future business strategies based on that. So lack of transparency is one of my biggest pain points right now. But in terms of the business and having opportunities to license content, it's an exciting time. Yeah, well, one of, obviously one of the major things that's talked about in the industry these days is big data, data analytics, data science, and so forth, which represents a significant shift and a, to a bigger opportunity to understand at greater depth all, everything you need to know really about how content is consumed and about the audiences that consume it. But to your point, not all of that data necessarily talks to each other in a seamless fashion. And not everybody supplies the data into that mix. And it's well known that Netflix is for, plays everything very close to their chest in that respect. Um, but you know what you've alluded to already is, is both of you is the, the off-schedule viewing and how that conventionally people say, well, that's gonna be the demise of television as we know it. Well, I don't know if I'd use the word demise. It's television morphing for sure. And to your point, Dave, people can watch this whenever they want now on different platforms. But this relates directly to the video that, that Liz, uh, you wanted to show, and it'd probably be a good moment to show that video. But um, one point you mentioned earlier, Liz, when you and I were talking was that it's hard to remember that it wasn't very long ago that we never used to say, what season are you on? But now because we can watch it in different times, uh, we, we discover a series after it's four seasons in. We say, yeah, what season are you on before you start talking about a given show? That, that just phrase was not even in the language 10, 15, 20 years ago. A third of young people say you could replace live TV with YouTube. What I immediately want to do is take a huge sample of young people and do exactly that. And then see how behavior actually changes and how many of them actually want some aspect at least of live TV back. Because my suspicion is it's one thing when people say that, but to actually live that it's a rather different picture. There are elements of live TV they do not want to miss, the element of discovery and mm -hmm. so forth. And I think some people miss out, they, 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 conf they conflate what they get from one aspect of the medium to another. Dave, what would your thoughts be on that? Well, let me, uh, the, the, the whole thing of this millennial thing, so let me yeah. give you a reality check on that. So the millennials, are uh, roughly from 16 now to about 35. Right? So what you do is you have half the millennials now are over 25 approximately and half the millennials are under 25. So the idea is that uh, if you look at past generations, you say, okay, we know that very young people watch less television. Why do they watch less television? Because they're not in the house as much. They have active lives, they're out, yeah. and, out and about, and they all, Throughout the history of television, young people have watched less television. Right? So 
Then you, you now look and you see, so the, what the reporters do is they say, look at these millennials, they're watching so little television. Well, guess what? 18 and 24 year olds always watch a little bit of television. So the question is, but they say, oh, what they're doing right now, all those YouTube videos and everything, that's what's going to do, that's what they're going to do for the rest of their life. So you look at previous generations and you see that when 18 to 24 year olds went to 25 to 34 year olds, they increased significantly the amount of television they watched as they moved from 18 to 24 to 25 to 34. They actually increased the amount of television they viewed 43%. In 1990, it was 43%. In 2000, it was 44%. So I said, well, what, do you, what about the millennials? Are the millennials increasing the amount of regular television that they watch as they have now gone? Half of them have gone from 18 to 24 to 25 to 34. What has happened as they have aged? We can now look at that. They've increased their broadcast television viewership 73% as they have moved from 18 to 24 to 25 to 34. And they're going to eventually go from 35, to, they're eventually going to get over 35 years of age. And guess what also, you know what happens when they reach 35? They actually become worth something to advertisers. <laughs> Up until that point, they had no money to spend and they were still, and half, two, a third of them were still living at home with their parents. They now are setting up, the, the leading edge of millennials are now setting up homes, they're starting families, they're getting married, and they're settling down. And like every generation before them, they're what, as I say, when you reach a certain age, when they reach a certain age, the first thing they do is they, get, they go out and they buy a house. And then the first thing they do is they buy the biggest television they can get with the biggest screen they can get. They get themselves a recliner and they settle in for domestic bliss. <laughs> uh, so right now, all the patterns of the millennials are moving in that direction. And as they move more and more towards traditional television, and as they follow that life stage, television viewing patterns are mostly determined by life stage. As they, want, as they follow that life stage, they're going to watch more and more television, and they're also going to become more and more valuable. Their millennials are, five years from now, the millennial generation will truly be controlling the economy of the U.S. Right now, the baby boomers still are the major force in the economy of the U.S. Five years from now, it will be the millennials as they get into that heavy spending period of their life. And when they get there, we'll be there with our advertisers. Well, well, can I, I, I just have to counter a little bit. While I agree with Dave, I would never underestimate the power of flat-assing for the American public and watching TV, because I think that is a huge driver. I do believe that the millennials have grown up with new brands and new brand affinity. I grew up with CBS as a favorite network, ABC, NBC, Fox, and then so transitioned you know, to the cable nets. I'm, I'm older, so cable nets like, came in later. But then I saw a whole generation grow up with cable networks and have a, a stronger affinity to cable nets. I now see generations growing up with new brands that are 
up there at the top of the spectrum in terms of my favorite network, my first destination. I still think they're watching our content, but I think they're watching it on other platforms. So while I, I agree with Dave that lifestyle may enter in, I agree that there's a brand affinity that is being um, developed over the, from plurals, kids 17 and under through millennials, that that's not going to go away with life stage. You have a brand affinity, you have a loyalty, and you're going to have that even as you age. Well, I, I, I would disagree to that to, to a certain extent. I, I agree that everybody brings their own generational uh, needs into the new uh, in, into the new order, but I believe as programmers we are capable of detecting that and building it into programs. So a show like Limitless on CBS has huge millennial appeal. It it also has broad-based appeal, and it's one of the top shows. It's one of the top shows in television. We can build that into our schedule. I mean, if you the Harris poll. A few weeks ago, the Harris Poll asked the, uh, did a big survey on what is your favorite television program. And the millennial, the 18 to 34 year olds, their favorite television programs were essentially NCIS, Big Bang Theory, Blacklist, Scandal. They were, the pro they were the broadcast shows. There wasn't, there wasn't one single YouTube show on the list, and, there, and, the, and the highest rated uh, Netflix show was about 25 or 30. So we, uh, we can follow them, and we can, if you, they're not that different in their taste. We, they, don't, they, la they laugh at the same jokes, they like the same dramatic effects. We did some Television research. isn't that dramatically different. Just to make a counterpoint, though, where I, I agree with programs and the appeal and the affinity of programs. People love great content and they have their favorites, right? In terms of programmers and being programmers, I believe younger viewers have become curators and programmers of their own lineups, right? And they're able to bring together a plethora of programs that they never had access to. And they're curating. So that has changed things slightly. Well, I still yeah. think shows such as Limitless and Blacklist, which is a Warner Brothers show, have great fandom. I think programs, the brand resonance is with programs as well. Well, yeah, um, distribution has changed, where they watch things has changed. Probably the, the, the most fundamental, if you really want to see a fundamental change that we are dealing, have to deal with, it is what I call the engaged streamers, the younger generation, in our segmentation, we call them engaged streamers. They've gone from 12% of the population to 25% of the population. Uh, they're mostly young people, but there are some people that they, they, broad, they, they broaden from that base. Uh, a large number of those people, what, what is really different in television right now is what I call streaming first viewers. Streaming first viewers are people, when they, they come home at night, they have a big television, they sit in front of that big television, but they do not turn on broadcast television. They turn on their Roku player, their Apple TV, and their first choice is probably Hulu or Netflix or something like that. That is 
a real change. And that distribution system, we have to be on top of that. The, the, the way vi video product gets on that television set in the home and on the phone and in the, uh, it's, that's changing. It's going more and more to over the top. We've got to adapt with that. But that being said, uh, there are 36 current primetime programs, back seasons of current of 36 primetime programs available on Netflix. 40% of the people when, of Netflix subscribers watch one or more of those programs on Netflix every week. The average Netflix subscriber watches three of those programs a week. These are the current, these are 36 current network television programs. So it isn't, that we can get our content to them. We're focusing on making the best content and finding all the different ways to get it to them. Uh, but that's what's really changing. We're, we can't count on the lead-in delivering the audience anymore. No, very good point. Um, by the way, we'll, um, we'll take questions as we go in a moment. But apropos uh, the generational thing, I would refer you to the words of Craig Ferguson. If you go on YouTube, look for something that Craig Ferguson did about young people. As a, it seemed to be a fairly spontaneous opener to one of his shows when he was still on CBS. He was bemoaning the emphasis upon young people for advertisers and for everything else as well. And it's a really good rant mm. on the basis that you know they're young, they're poor, and in his eyes, somewhat stupid. But why we're we all focusing on them? It's a really good rant. We actually did some research quite recently on millennials as well. We actually define them as being slightly older. To our mind, the oldest millennials are just scraping about 39. And fully 50% of them, to your point, Dave, are entering these life stages where they own their own property. They're in, they're in fixed jobs. They're in marriages or stable relationships. They have kids. Therefore, yes, they don't tend to go out quite so much. They do things in the home, including watch TV and they spend their money on things in the home. Um, so they're not the kind of perennial college kid image that a lot of people continue to associate with the label. And they are gonna be the biggest generation this country's ever seen. They, will, they, are, they are bigger than the boomer generation. So when they reach that point, uh, when all of them are earning, uh, they are going to be economically the powerhouse of the U.S. as well, which I think is incredibly important. Well, I was I was at a conference last week, and they, <coughs> I love I love this conference. The advertisers and marketers at this conference, and they they put up all the, the slide, and they had the millennials, and then they had Generation D, right? Huh? Generation D is the digital generation, which is like 16 to 24. This is the next generation, oh. and they showed and and they and the the. They said, uh, "This is the real generation. You know, this is the this is the generation you have to focus on now." And I said, "So wait, let me get this straight. For the last ten years, all I've heard is about millennials, 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 and now they finally got to a place where they're spending money and they're really driving the economy. And you've decided time to abandon them and look at sixteen-year-olds again." I 
marketers amaze me. I don't understand. Well, it's the people in the generational business. We've got to find the next lot. Oh, and, 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 and of course, it's all, and, when, and every, every, with all the research they have and everything, they always say, well, my, my son doesn't oh, yeah. watch any television. Yeah. It was their child. Although, the, that was a serious the, point with that. I mean, the millennial generation, a lot of people said they're the digital generation and so forth. Um, though it's by no means the only generation which is digitally enabled and digitally immersed. We know that. Uh, we are, all of us here. Um, and I have to put my hand up, I'm definitely no millennial. Um, but that next generation, we wouldn't label digital natives, though I don't like the term, but they're mobile natives for sure. Um, those teenagers and younger, they've grown up with a digital device in their hand that they have control of and frequently form outright ownership of with low supervision. Um, that has obviously significant implications as they carry forward expectations and behaviors, and it has implications for both content and for marketing. Liz, we're Warner Brothers, we associate Warner Brothers with movies, we associate it with big TV hits over, mm -hmm. over years, Friends and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. Where is a studio like Warner on the growing importance of the mobile delivery of content? Or even I mean, a, a the, to your point, originals? Friends and Big Bang. I mean, one of the, the biggest comedy on TV today, right? Big Bang. But we do understand that we call them the plural, 17 and under, are a mobile generation. And so we are developing content, shorter form content, for this generation that is mobile focused. And we are going internally and taxing and challenging our creative teams to develop this new format. And we're also investing in firms outside of the company and bringing in expertise. So we're going at it sort of at a 360 degree um, strategy because we do understand, you know, David and I disagree to some extent where they're gonna end up, but right now, where are they? And how can we get our content to them? And so we are developing new formats and de delivering to new platforms that even five years ago, we wouldn't have been in that space. Yeah. And we're now in that space. Yeah, well, uh, James Corden, Carpool car Karaoke, we consider it to be the model for this. I mean, it's- It's brilliant, huge, it's brilliant. Usually successful mm -hmm. for us and uh, for, and, and making us, He's making us making a star of him and helping build the show and everything, but that is uh, the the type of thing that we have to do. Yeah. And even uh, Ellen, that, Ellen, mobile, yeah. a daytime talk show, right? A thirteen-year-old series that on on linear TV we see continuing to age up, right? The median age is growing, and yet her social footprint is unrivaled by anyone else. I mean, she is one of the biggest brands in social. And we're finding a whole new young audience that is watching our clips and watching um, different bits that we're now putting up on the social sites exclusively for Ellen. So it's how do we build out those legacy brands on the new platforms as well. Now, are those young audiences then going to TV? Or no, they're not? They're not now. You know, and maybe they're still younger. And, you know, David and I, again, Maybe they will transition. Right now, they're not, right? Okay. But they're, we're capturing them where they are now. So you're kind of where, we're fishing where the fish are. So you might be incubating a potential audience yes. that then gravitates across. And, and we're incubating a fan yep. that we can monetize and we can build brand loyalty with. Okay. Now, let's, let's talk a little bit about some of the uh, changes that have been going on in advertising lately in terms of ad load. Um, Turner's made announcements about reducing or reorganizing ad load uh, on air. 
Nickelodeon um, and, and other MTV or Viacom brands, I believe, are doing the same kind of thing. Um, what's your take on that? Is, is that uh, going to have significant impact? Is that going to cause unforeseen un problems? And, and how does that impact the, the content production side of the world if suddenly there's many more minutes in an hour that have got to be produced? There's obviously a cost to that. Dave, what's your take on that? Well, the, uh, <laughs> in the first place, they're reducing their ad load down closer to our ad load. Exactly. So uh, that's the, uh, exactly. that's that's the, the first truth. thing. Uh, and the, uh, and I, I think that uh, some of that is, uh, if you can't sell it, what good is having it? You might as well cut it back a little bit. Creating the, the supply-demand equation, uh, it, it's dealing with the supply and demand equilibrium to a certain extent, and it is, and it does provide a better advertising uh, environment. That's that's the great news. The uh, the I guess the bigger challenge is is to just make really effective advertising, uh, and the the really good ads when with all the new analytics we have, we now have all of these sophisticated approaches where we can measure the return on investment and we can build algorithms and do linear regression analyses and all the kinds of analyses to actually provide attribution for the various uh, things that make a television, make an advertising campaign successful. The number one thing is the creative execution. When you get that ad made, and you go in with the, with the techniques that we have now, the neuroscience techniques and the ad testing techniques, and you test that ad, you will know right then whether or not you're going to sell, that ad is going to sell anything. And the really effective advertising is entertaining and informative at the same time. I was just at another session and I was talking about how many people have seen the Geico ad where there's a family in freeze frame and the dog jumps up on the table and starts eating all the food on the table and the family's in freeze And that ad is scores, tests through the roof. People, you, you will laugh at it. You will laugh at it the hundredth time you see it. You will still laugh at that ad. It's a tremendous ad. And during the, but when people do ads like that, they make one big mistake. They get caught up in the ad and they forget to t tell you who the advertiser is. Yeah. Geico's name in that ad, if you look at the ad, you don't even, their name is in letters about that high on the screen during the entire sequence. And, and there's no, uh, nothing else to compete with it. Geico is an example of somebody who really understands how to make effective advertising, and that's where we're going to make a difference. I think you just have to, you know, you talk about making a 30-second piece of creative programming that will attract millennials. Well, what's an ad but a 30-second piece of programming? Make that something that will attract millennials. And of course, many people say that that's the ultimate defense against ad blockers ads that people are prepared to watch. They may not tune in for ads. Nobody says, yes, I love ads, but it's not as if they don't know of an ad that they do like or are amused by yes. or whatever. Um, or, are there any questions from the audience? We go, ah, yes, do we have a microphone down here? Come on, Laurie, run much faster, please. Come along. 
the athletic Ms. Schwartz will be with you momentarily. Yes, sir. Hi, thanks for taking my question. So I feel like this is a question that's a little dated, but it's still very relevant at a local level, given the lack of commercial rating data we have compared to national. How, perhaps at a CBS O&O in a local market, do you sell the value of the time-shifted DVR'd audience to an advertiser? Because I feel like, and I keep reading the trades, you know, networks are saying Live Plus 3 or Live Plus 7 is now our standard, no longer Live Plus same, and certainly not Live Only. So I'm just wondering, locally, how do you uh, uh, take advantage of that time-shifted audience while not alienating the advertisers? Well, the, the the first thing is, is that uh, the people who fa fast forward through advertising, the number of people fast forwarding through advertising is actually declining. Uh, it, it is, uh, it, and we have a lot of research to support this, but it's it, it's somewhat counterintuitive to people. But over two thirds of the people who are watching television at night now have a, another device open at the same time. They either have a laptop in, fr in front of them, a, a, a tablet, or a phone. So there is an interact, they're, they're, multi they're multitasking, they're in a multimedia environment. So the, uh, what's happened is they say, well, wow, that's really gonna hurt the effectiveness of advertising. The fact that these people are now in a multimedia environment. Actually, the reverse is true. What's happening is, because you are engaged on a second device, you do not leave the room. You do not enter into conversations with other people. You do not get away from the television set. And it's been proven that ad recall among people who are tweeting, IMing, during the commercial breaks, the ad recall is actually higher than, than the overall population. And the other thing is, People are not fast forwarding through commercials as much because they don't have a hand to do it with. They're busy on their phone. That's the hand that would have gotten the remote control to push the fast forward button. The, which brings me to the bigger issue and what we're just tapping the surface of and that is television for advertisers. Television today is interactive, potentially interactive. That person is engaged, they're on a phone. So there's a, a company called Activate Me and Moby and Shazam, you see Shazam doing it where the phone actually communicate, the ad on the television communicates with the phone, sends a coupon to the phone. That type of interactivity is just beginning to be uh, to grow. In 2011, we first started testing that, and the public was really um, confused and didn't know how to do, use it and didn't know how to use, uh, get the, a coupon on their phone. We, re, we just did another round of it in, in, uh, last year, and we, were, we, we sat the people down and said, You're gonna, we're going to show you an app. They were on the app and using it before we even could explain it to them. Uh, yeah there is a great potential for enhancing the interactive element of advertising on television that we really haven't even tapped into, begun to tap into. Yeah, what I, what I'd just like real. to add to that though, is right now the currency in local is live same day. So you're capturing approximately 90% of that delayed viewing in that live same day number. So, right, if you guys keep me honest, I think yeah. that's about 
Yeah. You know, so you're still capturing the most most of the delayed viewing in the live same day metric. Obviously, we can do better and capture you know beyond, but as long as we use that live same day metric, so. And as to that interactivity stuff, we did work on that at Maggot a little while ago, and in line with Dave's point and the experience I had back in the UK, but that stuff is now very real, very straightforward from a user perspective. It has huge potential on a local level for all sorts of people who are local advertisers, massive. And very, very accountable, that's the great thing. Really shortens the distance between the exposure to an ad and an action on the part of the consumer. Any other questions before we wrap? Yes, sir, down the front. Do we have a microphone? Who's on microphone monitor? You said slightly louder. No. Terribly sorry. Over here. Watch me run. Watch this. <laughs> Hello. Um, I think all the points that you have uh, put forward to us are really important. Some of them are conflicting on the way they were presented. But in my view, the, the, the attracting factor is what the prime uh, companies are putting on prime time. Now, what have changed is that people have greater accessibility. Now, what are the network doing to reach to that accessibility instead of the traditional you know, time? Now, of course, there is the other limiting factor, which is the, the effectiveness of the advertising, which is outside the reach of the network because the advertiser is the one who put it together and depend on what kind of person you use. But I want to see, because that's what's going to change, really. Accessibility will increase, the time in TV on demand will, will be also. So the, the shift really is these people who can create the content with the great resources are limited because it's huge expenses. So if they disappear, then how are you going to get these, you know? If I can start with that. So um, I touched on this at the beginning of our discussion um, when Mike talked about the challenges and I mentioned it's actually opportunities for us. So Warner Brothers is one of the largest suppliers of programming to the broadcast nets. Um, and now we're expanding selling and licensing originals to the SVOD providers. So, for example, Fuller House that you see on Netflix, that's a Warner Brothers production. Um, Gilmore Girls is coming back in originals, that's a Warner Brothers production that we license to Netflix. We also have Green Eggs and Ham, another original coming. So we're not only creating originals for our network partners, but we're broadening our distribution footprint. And what's really interesting about that is the storytelling on these platforms is a little different because our partners tell us that their viewers watch three episodes at a time. So that means your story arcs have to peak over three episodes, not over one. So we're learning a new storytelling dynamic as we develop for new platforms. So you're yes. right, we do have the resources and we are now broadening the footprint. And with us, of course, uh, it, it, it's CBS All Access, okay? CBS All Access, I mean, we've, we've taken a page out of Netflix's uh, playbook, and we're developing uh, a, our own uh, subscription-based SVOD service, CBS All Access. Yeah, you get local, all, on all devices, local television from your local affiliate, and you get access to the entire library of all CBS back content, and, uh, and original programming. 
So we just announced that we are going to bring back Star Trek. And Star Trek is going to be an original program that's only going to be available on CBS All Access. Yay for that. Oh. We also have Longmire. The, Longmire okay, on no, The budget, advertising budget is not changing because you're changing. The well, th these will be all ad-free that we're producing for SMOD. There's no ad model, right? But the production budget rivals that and in some cases is larger than that of a network <coughs> show. I mean, these are quality productions that we're licensing. No, but I they're ad-free. On, on when we license. Yeah, but when you cut, the, when you slice the pie of the production budget, I mean the advertising budget, you're really switching it from one side to the other on what tools. So when you're saying it's affecting... From, from the advertising side, you mean to the subscription side? No, the companies have a budget every year. They, okay. they put it. So when you add it all up, that's the budget that's available mm -hmm. that will give you all the, your revenue. Mm -hmm. You're right. So... But well, you're shifting from one media. Exactly. You're just shifting the share of, of revenue that's coming in. So your SVOD provider, in our case, has to pay the full freight, right? Okay. They have to cover the production. Because you're the. Okay. Thanks. Questions? Very clear example of innovation there, though, when you're actually. I, mean, I love the, just that detail of learning to make shows with a different kind of story arc. It's not oh. the one episode, it's the three episodes, and although that's true across a whole series, when you realize, yeah, sure, you've got three episode well, binging yeah. is the norm. I'll give you a, 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 another... Uh, people sometimes say to us, why do, you sell, why do you sell your program to Netflix? You know, they're a competitor. Uh, why do you want to do that? Well, so we have this show, Zoo, was on in the summer of uh, last year, and we sold the... Uh, we, you know, it, it runs... Uh, it ran for like 10 episodes and then it goes off the air uh, and then it, it, we sold it to Netflix. So Netflix picks it up in the fall. Well, the average person uh, who watched Zoo in the summer watched 3.5 out of the, I, I think, I'm not sure, it might have been 12 episodes, 13 episodes, but they watched 3.5, that's all they watched. It's typical for a network program because of the timing aspect. Uh, so they only watched 3.5 episodes. Okay, now we looked at Netflix view. The net, now it's on Netflix. So during the fall, when it's sitting there on Netflix, uh, those people, those Netflix subscribers, continue to watch and catch up and watch other episode, episodes. So then we ask people, so we ask, ask people, are you going to watch it this summer? And the people who watched it on Netflix are much more likely to say they're going to watch it on CBS in the summer. So this is a win-win. We get a big check from Netflix for the program, and Netflix helps build a base audience so that next summer the show comes back stronger than ever. I can That's just the new economic. Add to David's point another example that really echoes that. So Friends went up on Netflix. We found a whole new audience that never watched it on NBC. A lot of you probably have kids that binge through all 204 episodes. But then what uh, the team did up here at in front was we're able to parse the Nielsen national ratings by those who have access to SVOD service and those who don't. And we saw the cable ratings among the SVOD homes actually grow once it went on Netflix, while the non-SVOD homes continued their slow erosion over time. The same thing happened for Seinfeld on Hulu. It went up on Hulu, we parsed the national sample, 
up, 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 up goes the Hulu, uh, pardon me, the Seinfeld ratings for those SVOD subs and a slow decline on the non. So we think it definitely does drive people or maybe it's a marketing or a promotional element. It makes them more aware if they are doing collision viewing or surfing. That was really interesting to us and we continue to study that. Which gives you an idea of how the majors are actually looking at all the data that's available as they work out how to navigate the new landscape. Um, you know, one thing that is interesting though, and that we hear time and again, um, not least from the Wall Street analysts, bless their little cotton socks, is, um, you know, ratings are down year on year and all the rest of it. Then they start using words like systemic and irreversible and so on, and they point resoundingly at the SVOD services and say everybody's moving to Netflix. And it's true, Netflix and other services are now in more than 50% of US households. Doesn't mean they account for more than 50% of US viewing, of course, but nonetheless, they have a very strong presence and that is going to continue. It would be unwise to bet against it. So that logically means that if you just take Amazon and Netflix as ad-free environments, that there's a whole lot of eyeballs spending a good deal of time in ad-free environments. Um, what does that mean for advertisers? Are advertisers simply going to say, okay, they're lost to me, I've got to make better use of the ad-supported space? Is it, does it mean that there's going to be a premium placed on the remaining inventory that is there, depending on who's left and, and who migrates more of their time across? Does it mean that they're going to go to the likes of Netflix with some irresistible proposition to underwrite in the way that PBS allows? Or are they going to try and associate with access to Netflix by saying, okay, you're one of our premium customers, we'll pay half your Netflix Netflix subscription for a year. I mean, what do you foresee happening? Because I just can't believe advertisers are going to let all those eyeballs get away from them. Well, well I think what you, you have to do is, you have, they have to get back to the whole concept of reach, right? Uh, and I, it's too long a discussion right here, but advertisers since the, uh, since the turn of the century and particularly since the recession, advertisers have moved to efficiency-based buying that has reduced the reach of their schedule. The average advertiser reaches far less people with their schedule today than they did five or ten years ago. Not because the medium can't reach the people, it's because they, uh, on a CPM basis, they're, they're just buying more and more little tiny ratings and they're, they're not buying the premium pro programs. Half the population of the country watches a hell of a lot of television and you can, you can reach them very easily. The other half of the country watches a lot, does, does not watch as much television, but they watch a lot of television. That half is the more affluent half. They're the biggest, they're the more they, their consumption levels are higher, they're the, they're, they pay premium prices, they're the most desirable half of the population. The advertisers have not been reaching them as effectively because of this efficiency mentality. Uh, read the Wall Street Journal today about how the advertisers are realizing this and now they're going, the industry is moving back to reach-based planning where they're going to buy television so as to maximize reach. That's going to require paying premiums for those programs that reach the hard to reach. And the hard to reach are certainly the people who spend a lot of time on Netflix. The good news is they don't spend all their time on Netflix and they are and they will 
continue to be available. But it will be selective. There will be a, the, 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 the supply and demand in the advertising equation is going to change. Mm -hmm. And the valuable advertising spots are going to become harder to get. And in a, any kind of supply and demand situation, that is going to be a challenge for, for advertisers that's coming. They're, they're competing uh, with ad-free services right now. We're all competing with for ad-free services. We're creating our own ad-free services. Uh, and to the extent that anything shifts to an ad-free base, it cuts down the amount of advertising impressions available. And that can be a good thing or a bad thing depending on what, where the supply and demand equilibrium point is. Yes, did you add anything to that, Nala, for yeah, the final minute? I'll, I'll just add, as a studio um, producing movies, we obviously understand the importance of reach, right? We have to open a movie um, in the, that weekend, otherwise, right, it's a quick death. So we have to not only target and, and reach our demo, but we have to have a broad reach and we have to be effective with that. So, and TV is still where it's at, without a doubt. And so while our models may be a hybrid of targeting based on database uh, metrics that we're using more and more within the studio, we still, the majority of the buy is based on reach. Okay. Uh, I'm going to wrap this here. There's about four or five more questions I wanted to get into. Um, so I'm just going to have to solve. I'm going to grab these guys. Come back up. next year. Come back next year. Look at that. Buy your tickets now. That means you're coming back. We'll have changed all our answers. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so keep your notes for next year and there'll be a Q&A on that specifically. The viewers will have changed. Right. Well, yeah. So uh, please give thanks to Dave. And we to can. Thank you. Thank you. Dave and Liz and Mike, I certainly learned so much today, and I'd like to hang out with you guys, because insights rule. <laughs> All right, let's have a big hand for our panelists now at the Advanced Advertising Theater. We're going to be starting up again tomorrow at 10 a.m., and we're going to dig into ad blockers for the business of ad tech tomorrow. So come back and join us, if you can, tomorrow morning at 10 a.m., and one more big hand for our fabulous folks here. Thank you so much. We've been broadcasting live from voiceamerica.com. I'm Lori Schwartz, your friendly neighborhood tech cat. It's been great having you. And again, what an attractive audience we have here. Back to you, Ryan. Yeah, you're tuned in to voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Advanced Advertising Theater today from NAB 2016. Our very own uh, tech cat, Lori H. Schwartz, moderating uh, the theater today. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we'll be bringing you some more live broadcasting right here from the floor at NAB 2016. Stay tuned for a broadcast live tomorrow. VoiceAmerica.com forward slash live events. The world leader in Internet Talk Radio. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com.